Father, we thank you for songs that express so well what we ought to feel so deeply, what we ought to mean so sincerely. We thank you for this prayer that we have sung to you already and we continue in prayer. Father, we pray that our praise, our voices and song would be to you this morning and every Lord's Day a sweet sound in your ear. And now as we come to your word, we pray that your voice would be a sweet sound to our ear. And we know that whenever we open your word, we need your spirit's help for it to be a sweet sound for as sinners, we would resist your word and resist your will and resist any loving approach on your part to us. But your word comes to us uh, from kindness, from your love, and from your heart. And we pray that we would have eyes to see what is there and ears to hear what is there as sweet. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, friends, it is impossible to quantify how kind you all have been to our family over this last month or so as we've been here, but I'll try to quantify it. How about this? 100% of our interactions with you have been positive and sweet. Those of you who are new around here, those of you who are veterans, uh, young and old, in the halls and in your homes, you have been abundantly gracious, and it speaks to God's work among you and among us. I'm eager to open God's word with you, as I expect you are. Let's do it. Please open in your Bibles to the book of Revelation. We'll be in Revelation chapter 1 this morning. If the book of Revelation can be hard to understand, at least it is not hard to find. This is the last book in your Bibles. And before we read, let me set this up. Today we begin to talk about some changes coming to this church. That's often on people's mind with the arrival of a new pastor for preaching and teaching. So I want to be fully honest with you about my agenda for you. And this will come to some ears more, with more difficulty than others, but I feel like I owe it to you. Now before you throw apples, nuts, and rotten produce, let me explain what I mean. When you and I talk about what needs to change in the church, we're usually talking about the surface things, the programmatic things, the times and the places that people are of ministry. We're speaking of the aesthetic things, the sights and the sounds of church life or church gatherings. These kinds of things come with pros and cons. They're a matter of prudence and wisdom, not right and wrong. And these things are not unimportant. I promise you I enjoy talking about these things, but they are not ultimately important. Rather, they're driven by what is ultimately important. So how can we together, you and me, easily distracted souls that we are, and I admit that I can be, how can we get clear on and get around the really important things together? How can we agree on the right kind of change where that's needed? And how can we agree on the right things to guard, ever ferociously guard from change? Well, wouldn't it be nice if we had a letter from Jesus Christ to a church like ours to read? Better yet, because no two churches are alike, wouldn't it be nice if we had seven letters from Jesus Christ to seven different churches? Then we'd have 
We'd have Jesus' heart, if you will, on surround sound to our ears. Well, seven such letters have been discovered, and they're on the page before you. In Revelation chapters 1 through 3, specifically 2 through 3, but we'll be in one this morning. Today we begin a series titled, The Seven, Jesus' Words to His Churches in Revelation. A series through an easy-to-miss part of our Bibles, these first three chapters of this book. A series through seven letters that Jesus wrote to seven churches. Letters about what he wants to see change and what he wants to ferociously guard from change. Letters to unique churches in very unique, separate, different contexts with corresponding unique pressures and temptations and difficulties. Letters with Jesus' words of commendation and correction, letters with some hard words, some very hard words, but all from an abundance of Jesus' love for his people. And as we'll see as we work through this series, Jesus is much more encouraging than we might expect, often than we are. And he is also much more critical even than we can be. His words are so sharp at times in these short letters. But in love, Jesus is not preoccupied over surface matters of change for his churches, but what we might call subterranean change, the stuff that goes on below the surface, the spiritual change, not the superficial, but the supernatural kind of change. And isn't that the best? And it's in listening to these words from Jesus to these churches in these places, these seven letters, the number of completion, that we can get a sense for as we listen carefully to God's word, what Jesus might be saying to us. We'll begin working through each of these letters, one per week, starting next week. Those letters begin in chapter 2, but there's a reason why we have chapter 1 before it, the chapter that's in the page before you. For before Jesus has something to tell us, Jesus has something that he wants us to see. So let's read together, even with the eyes of our heart, let us look together this morning at Revelation chapter 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings on earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood, and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. 
I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like the white wool, like white snow. His eyes were like flames of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last, and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys to death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw on my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Well, at the risk of generalizing and insulting all my new friends, I'm going to make three generalizations to try to cover everybody equally. When it comes to revelation, remember these are generalizations, you're either a fanatic about this book or you are paralyzed about this book or you're ambivalent about this book. You've given up a long time ago. Well, my goal is to focus the fanatic off the nerd points, if you will, on Christ It's to enliven the paralyzed and relax the paralyzed so they can see Christ and to excite the ambivalent so that they can enjoy him. Revelation is a difficult book. It's a long chapter. It's a long chapter with quite a bit going on, this first chapter is. So let's keep the outline simple this morning. We have something to seek together and we have something to see together in this chapter. Something to seek and something to see. Introductory matters in that first division, followed by a reflection on the vision that we saw in the second division. First, something to seek. Seeking Christ's blessing. Verses 1 through 11. Now, I have not always thought of the book of Revelation as a blessing, and neither have you. It's why you wondered if it was smart for me to begin with the book of Revelation in my preaching ministry. And if you're new to the Bible, you're still probably familiar with the book of Revelation. And if you have never read it, you're still probably pretty sure it will perplex you. And that's fair. It is a difficult book for us for obvious and straightforward reasons. Its content 
assumes the whole Bible. Its genre, the form it comes to us in, is extinct. Its ancient history is obscure. And this book has a pretty bad track record of taking our eyes off Jesus Christ, of distracting us and churches. All of this is true. But this is also true. Take a look at verse 3 with me. John writes, only three verses deep in this book, Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. And blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. Friends, this book is not Jesus' attempt to make sure there's a little something for everyone in the Bible. Like poetry, we've got poetry. Like good drama, well, we've got narrative. Like sci-fi, we've got apocalyptic. And apocalyptic is the genre that this book comes to us in. No, this book is for everyday Christians, and its blessing is for any everyday Christian who reads it aloud, check, who hears it, and who keeps it. And somewhere between hearing and keeping is understanding. Does it occur to you that John, the Apostle John, and the Spirit who wrote through him, wrote assuming to be understood? So let's get after it. The first 11 verses are an on-ramp to the rest of the book, and so an on-ramp to the blessing of the rest of the book. And so we'll start here with the first 11 verses, focusing specifically on the first three verses to simplify the next few minutes. Verse 1, John says that this is a revelation of Jesus Christ. This is the kind of book that it is and the kind of content that it has. It's a revelation. When we come to the book of Revelation, often we we think that God is hiding something from us. Surely we can't see what's there. But just as its name indicates, and this first few words of the book indicate, it's actually meant to reveal. It's not meant to hide, but to bring understanding. That's the kind of book that it is. And its content is, is that of Jesus Christ himself. It's a revelation of Jesus Christ. He's the subject and substance of the book. And a little bit about him. Verse 5, John says Jesus is the faithful witness. He speaks a sure and a true and a faithful word as our prophet. He's the firstborn from the dead. He's our priest. He died for us and he is raised. He's the firstborn of a new creation. Not the firstborn of this creation, but of an entirely new creation. And we follow him as Christians, as those raised from the dead ourselves. He's the ruler of the kings of earth. He's the king and the Lord and the sovereign of all. This is the Christ this book was written to honor and to exalt. And this is the Christ we read to know better. It occurs to me that this is not so much different from the aim of every other letter that we have in our New Testaments after all. He is the Christ who made us a kingdom, priests to our God, an incredible status for such meager people as you and I, and yet true of us if we're in him. Which leads to our next part. We see that Jesus gave this revelation 
Second part of verse 1. Which God gave him to show to his servants. To his servants. This is his intended audience. And there's a, a little chain of audiences here. The first in the chain is John himself. Jesus sent his angel to his servant John. Who wrote down then at Jesus' instruction what he saw. On the Lord's day. Sunday, like this, he heard a voice saying, verse 11, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches. And then he lists the churches by name. Jesus appears to John. John records these words, what he saw for the seven churches. And there's a third link. Take a a quick turn over to chapter 2 and look at verse 7. Verse 7 concludes the first of the seven letters that we'll be looking at in the weeks ahead. And each of the letters ends with a line that goes something like this. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And here's what this means. That as Jesus is speaking through John words for seven separate churches, he is doing this intending that the church throughout every age will listen in on what he is saying. He has selected seven churches deliberately, seven churches, as we've said, with different issues in different contexts. And by listening to Jesus' seven churches, those who have ears to hear will hear what Jesus is saying to them. This letter is for everyone who has ears to hear. It may be a book common for Christians, but it is not a common book. So how are we to understand it? Well, the next line gives us a good clue. Here's how. He says that Jesus Christ, and we're back in chapter 1 in the first verse, now to the second. Jesus Christ made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. This is an indication of how this book was written and also, well, it's subtle, how the book actually works. Made it known. In other words, other trans, otherwise translated, signified. It's a book of symbols. Revelation is a difficult book. So much of Revelation that is more tricky, we're not going to get into maybe for another year or another season. And we've got to have a little bargain throughout this series that you're going to be okay when I don't chase all kinds of interesting things or when a question is raised on the page that that I don't answer. The book is full of symbols, and we're going to stop short in chapter 3 before all of the, I don't know, perhaps more interesting stuff, you might think. Signified, made it known. It's a book of symbols. Look at verse 4. We have ourselves an interesting little uh, nugget here to examine. No doubt you heard it and maybe you scratched your head. Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. Sounds like a normal letter so far in the New Testament. And from the seven spirits that are before his throne and from Jesus Christ. Are there literally seven spirits before the throne? No. Seven is the number of completion. There were seven days in the story of creation. It might be like in our culture, uh, the number 10. It's a nice round number. You have 10 fingers, 10 toes, seven means. 
the one and only Spirit of God. And knowing that the author is writing in this fashion helps, helps when we come to those kinds of nuggets. So what does it mean to read it literally? Well, we read it according to what it literally means. And to do that properly, we have to know the genre it belongs to and how it works. If you think of poetry, it has certain rules. And letters, they have certain rules. And stories have certain rules. But Revelation belongs to what's called apocalyptic genre. And it has its own rules. And you haven't experienced this genre. It is long dead. We don't write in it anymore. But the original readers would have understood how to hear literature written in this genre. And we have some experiences of some things, at least, that are a little bit like apocalyptic literature. So I think it'll be helpful to chase this down a little bit. It'll help with the vision we hear later in the sermon. And with more of the book of Revelation, if you decide to read beyond where we're going to go in the series. Some things that are common in our experience that can help us to understand the book. A comic When I was a kid, I remember my dad saying something like, I swear someone from my office writes Dilbert. And I thought, oh, someone from his office is writing Dilbert. And uh, later on, I realized what he meant. When I worked in an office and I swore someone from my office worked in Dilbert, or wrote Dilbert. What's going on? Was there a talking dog in my dad's office? No. A good comic interprets the world. There's a reason that we get them. Because they get us. In one sense, they're completely unreal. And in another sense, they're utterly, perceptively, incredibly, and surprisingly true. So it's like a comic strip, or even like a comic book. We find extravagant pictures and characters and events and stories with development in here. Jesus' hair, white, his face like the sun. You could almost say it's like sci-fi meets poetry meets a letter. It takes you into a symbolic universe to return you to earth, seeing everything more clearly. It's like a comic. It's also like a satellite, this kind of literature is. It gives you the, the cosmic biggest possible, hugest picture of what's going on in the world. The God's eye view of what's going on in the world. The view of the world that takes into account everything from God's perspective. John was taken up into heaven. And through this book, John takes us with him to see what's behind the curtain of the world. It's like a satellite. It's also like an onion. It has layers. And this can be helpful to think about. There's the text layer. You're you're reading words on a page that John has written. But there's also the visionary layer. John actually saw with his eyes, what he's writing. So you'll think of later in Revelation, a lamb seated on a throne. That's the text. Well, John saw a lamb seated on a throne. That's the visionary layer. Then there's the referent layer. The lamb is Christ, and Christ isn't an actual physical lamb. Oh, but he's a lamb. And then there's the significance layer. That Christ is pictured as a lamb in the midst of the throne means that his victory and rule were established through his death on the cross as a sacrificial lamb. There's the text, there's the vision, there's the referent, and then there's the significance. That can be helpful when you're staring at a vision on the page. And last, the visions are like a blender. 
It's what it does to content. It takes images and oftentimes a whole pack of Old Testament quotations or allusions and as though puts them in a blender to create something beautiful and smooth and similar and different. Multiple images converging in a single verse. So if you read this book and think, I'm confused, your next thought should not be, I'm a moron. It should be, God has written a masterpiece. Really, don't be discouraged by this book. Consider this book a challenge. If you read it once and think, ugh, I give up, don't do that. Just read it again and again and again and again and again, and guess what? Guess what? You might start seeing the world differently especially as you keep reading the whole Bible. This is how apocalyptic literature works. It takes you into a symbolic universe to put you back seeing straight. And let me say something that needs to be said before we proceed. This is a hard book, and our interpretation of this strange book should not be a litmus test for fidelity to God's word. Oh, this is why this book gives us so much trouble, and it's why preachers are tempted to stay away from it because of what we can do with it. So let's be careful that with such a difficult book and such a foreign genre and a book that draws on all of the Bible that we tread carefully here, as I will, so long as we're earnestly seeking to understand God's word on God's terms, we're in a good place. Thankfully, we'll be spending the rest of our time in what is a relatively easy part of the book. So finally, here... In verse 3, as we've mentioned already, the reason for the book, the reason for the book, it was written to bless those who read it. But how? We get a clue in verse 9. How does this book, in this particular genre, bless those who read it? It might feel like a rock. You ask for a blessing and you get the book of Revelation. (laughs) Well, maybe for some people this would be a blessing. So how is this particular book, in this particular form, a blessing? A clue in verse 9, where John writes, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. John is old and he's getting older and he's one who is called Jesus' beloved disciple, the one whom Jesus especially loved. He has had an amazing, amazing life. He heard Jesus say of Peter, on this rock, I will build my church. And he's the one who leaned against Jesus' breast at the Lord's Supper in the upper room. But now John, in his old age, an apostle, is exiled on a 10 by 10 mile volcanic rocky island. And he's exiled because of the things that he's been saying in the course of his life about Jesus Christ. He's not imprisoned. This is not a moment of especially intense persecution that that first century church would know. He can probably roam around that island. But it is persecution. And there are all kinds of persecutions on a scale. On account of Jesus, he's been exiled to this island. And that's the mood of Christianity in this place. And that's the mood of Christianity in every place where it's faithful. For Jesus has promised persecution to those who are righteous, and those who are his. And he says here to his readers, John, your brother and partner in, one, the tribulation, two, 
the kingdom. And three, in the patient endurance that John is demonstrating through tribulation. This genre, this super weird kind of book, get this, is perfectly suited to the suffering persecuted Christian who might wonder where God is in it all. It would be one thing to say, God is in control. It's quite another thing to give him this book. But this is the book that we need. And if you don't need it at the moment, you may need it. And if you don't need, especially needing this word for persecuted Christians in the course of your life, the generation you're raising will. It gives them a true way of looking at things through a symbolic experience for the sake of our patient endurance. So it should come as no surprise that Revelation is of more interest where the church experiences greater persecution. Well, that's a bit by way of introduction to the letter. Jesus' letters begin in chapter 2, that is his seven letters. So what's left over in chapter 1? We're not done yet. Verses 12 through 20. What is the first thing that John and these seven churches need? What do they need for the blessing of comfort in tribulation and trial and persecution? What do they need for the blessing of assurance of Jesus' kingdom? And what do they need for the reward that is promised to those who patiently endure? What is the first thing that we need in order to lay hold of the blessing promised by this book? A vision of Christ's majesty. A vision of Christ's majesty. What John saw we need right now. And I'm going to do what I can not to dissect the panda. And by that I mean we're about to walk into an apocalyptic vision of Jesus that is intended to throw you on the floor. We don't understand all of the images here, and so some explanation and some unpacking is going to happen. But I don't want it to be a merely interesting or encyclopedic experience, but an experience of Jesus Christ himself. May God grant it to us. So we'll read the vision, and then I'll unpack it. Here it is, verse 12. This is what John, exiled on Patmos, sees. Then I turned, he says, to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like the flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun, shining in full strength. This here is not the Jesus of our often overly sentimentalized imaginations of Jesus with a flowing gown and hair. But this is the Jesus that John saw and this is the Jesus that Jesus himself revealed himself to be to John and it is the Jesus that is on our page at Jesus' instruction for us to perceive. And this is the vision that we all this morning need. We need a vision of Jesus in our midst. 
the first thing John saw was seven golden lampstands. And those are Jesus' seven churches. And he's in their midst. Lampstands were in the Old Testament tabernacle and temple. One to be exact with seven lights. And they represented Israel's call to be light there in the present. The lamps, presence of God. The lampstands lit. And these seven first century churches didn't have big buildings. They didn't have projection. They even had their share, as we will see in weeks to come, of frankly pretty serious problems, which in a strange way we'll find encouraging. They had every reason for earthly insecurity, in other words. But what else did they have? Jesus Christ in their midst. And there he was. And for that reason, they had every heavenly reason for total and complete security. And so the most important thing about these seven churches, and so every gospel faithful church, is the most certain thing about us, and that is Jesus is in our midst. He's in the midst of his lampstands. He's tending to them. He is among them. But we need more than to see Jesus where he is. We need, ultimately, this morning, to see him. We need to see Jesus as incomparably great. Did you notice what he was wearing? A robe, a long robe, and a golden sash. He is one of fantastically high distinction. The most important distinctive of our church is the distinguished, the distinctability of Jesus Christ himself among us. We tend to identify ourselves relative to other churches, but the most, thing, most important thing about our church is that we belong to this one, Jesus Christ. So we need to see him as incomparably great. And we need to see him as eternally wise. Did you notice his hair? It's not a little gray. It's white. It's all white. And it's always been that way. We have fathers in the room with heads of gray hair. And that's a good thing. We need their wisdom, and God has granted it to them. But all of our wisdom is fathers, and I only have a little bit. All of our wisdom as fathers is derivative. It's collected. We gather it. And frankly, we lose a lot of it. Jesus' wisdom is from eternity. In this apocalyptic or comic book-like vision, Jesus' hair has always been bleach white. So we need to see him for as great as he is. We need to see what he's wearing, his eternal wisdom. We need a vision of Jesus, the all-seeing, verse 14 Look into his eyes. They're a flame of fire with penetrating heat. He sees all and through all perfectly. All our sin and every injustice committed against us and all of our faithfulness in every trial. Everything he sees, everything about you, he knows. A reason for trepidation and in Christ a reason for great comfort. And we need to see a vision of Jesus, the strong. Look at his feet, burnished bronze. Bronze, the metal of weapons. This bronze refined in a furnace. It's pure bronze. It is without flaw. It is incredibly strong. And the sight of his feet indicates his strength. 
We need a vision of his voice. Listen to it. Verse 15, it's like the roar of many waters. Not just a roar, but a roar of waters. And not just of waters, but of many waters. Have you ever stood next to a waterfall? It's hard to have a conversation. You don't answer a call next to a waterfall. They won't hear you. Jesus' voice is like the roar of many waters. It drowns out when he has heard every other voice. We need a vision of Jesus who holds angelic beings in his right hand. His right hand, the place of power. You see in his hand seven stars, and those seven stars are seven angels. Angels, the appearance of which on their own strike fear into man apart from God's word to relax and relieve and comfort him. These angels are in his right hand. And look at his mouth. We need a vision of Jesus whose words cut. There's a sharp two-edged sword coming out of it. A sharp sword. A sword doesn't come from his hand, but his mouth. It refers to his words. It's double-edged. It is complete. It is penetrating. And we need a vision of Jesus in blinding splendor. Look at his face if you can. It will kill you to see it. It is too bright. It is too radiant. It is too glorious. It shines like the sun in full strength. Now I've given away, and of course we've read the passage, that this vision is intended as a comfort for Christian readers. But let us not misunderstand how. We often think of Jesus, perhaps, as comforting, as cuddly. But this is no cuddly image of Jesus, and yet it's comforting. It's a ferocious Christ. These are extreme images. Any one of them experienced on its own would end you. The roar of many waters, the sun, a face like the sun. And these all are, co- are combined for a vision of comprehensive, incredible, captivating, and utterly on its own, crushing majesty. And so we ought to do whatever we do when we're in grave danger. We get low. We hit the ground. We get out of the way. Rich or poor, young or old, this vision of Jesus levels the playing field and flattens the one before it. Abraham heard the voice of God. And what did he do? He fell on his face. Moses heard the voice of God from a bush and he hid his face for he was afraid to look at God. Joshua saw the angel of the Lord and fell on his face on the earth. And Isaiah was given a vision of the Lord in splendor and he said, Woe is me for I am lost. Indeed, even John has been here before on the Mount of Transfiguration before Jesus' death and resurrection when Jesus revealed his glory and it says his face shone like the sun, and John, with James and Peter, fell face to the ground. It's all you can do. It is the only natural response of a human being who has any perception of what's before him or her to fall. But Jesus knows we need more than a vision of him. We need to hear him say, as he did to John in verse 17, these words, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys 
to death and to Hades. You are safe with me. The touch from Christ is not devastating for John, but delivering. This touch does not bring death. It defeats death. John fell as though dead, but he was before the one who holds the keys to death itself. Jesus says, fear not, I have the keys, you're safe. And how did he get the keys? Well, let me assure you, they were hard won. Look at verse 5. Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. By his blood. Yes, this Jesus before us as the Son bled. This one whose voice is as many waters and whose feet are as bronze. This one whose description matches the description of the very Lord himself from his prophets. May I just say that every image ascribed to Jesus, every part of the description that we've unpacked, has a referent in the Old Testament. Unpacking all of that might be dissecting the panda this morning. I decided not to do it, (laughs) just to paint it for you. But every image has a referent in the Old Testament. In what is a description either of Yahweh himself or of the Messiah to come, Jesus Christ himself, Yahweh come for his people, the Messiah who brings his kingdom. Yes, this one, the divine man, Jesus Christ, bled to free us from our sins. But why? Why would this one with such power have anything to do with us? Well, did you notice this beautiful little line? He loves us. To him who loves us and freed us from our sins by his blood. The seven stars in Jesus' hands, it says those are the seven angels, one assigned to every church. You know, I don't know if every church gets an angel. If they do, I don't know when they get their angel. (laughs) Um, When two or three are gathered or when they're incorporated. I don't know if churches have their angels. I'm not going to chase that one down. Uh, he says there's seven stars in his hand, an angel for every of the church, each of the churches he'll write to. And the takeaway for me is Jesus has his churches in his hand. We're perfectly in his care. It's a tight grip, but it doesn't hurt. For he loves us. I love that that's sitting here right in the middle of this first chapter in range of this vision of Jesus. To him who loves us and freed us from our sins by his blood. My friends, if you are new to the Bible this morning and new to church and and Christianity and exploring these things, don't be discouraged by the length or the difficulty of the Bible or of this book. Be encouraged by its simple message of salvation from sin through Jesus Christ, who loved sinners and who bled for their salvation. And you too can entrust yourself wholly to him and find yourself on the right side of this Christ in his majesty. But be warned, for as John says in verse 7, Behold, he is coming with the clouds, 
and every eye will see him, the one we've seen, even those who pierced him, and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. So if you have not humbled yourself before this majestic Christ, for saving protection from death and from hell, then you will not be safe from death and hell, for he is the only one with the keys. And you will die in your sins, and you will get what you deserve. But praise God, you do not have to get what you deserve if you come to him. Friends, can I state the obvious? That it is a proper vision of Jesus Christ in his glory held before you that has sustained Heritage Bible Church. And it will continue to be, regardless of whatever else we may think is interesting to talk about or important. Ultimately, it will be a vision of Jesus Christ in all of his majesty, from all of scripture held before you, heard by you, and kept by you that will sustain Heritage Bible Church. And if we get good at doing church and forget him, may our doors close. We are the branches. He is the vine. We are the body. He is the head. We are conformed to his image. We are his. And ultimately, all of that subterranean change, that spiritual change, that supernatural change, is to bring about conformity to Christ. Christ himself is the change that he, Christ, wants to bring. And so it's my prayer that a lot would change around here of this very kind, that God would continue to do in you what he has been doing since this church was founded, conforming men and women, indeed his people at Heritage Bible Church, to the image of his son. This vision sustained John in his suffering, and it was given to sustain seven special little insignificant churches with problems in the first century. And it was written down by John so that we might, if we have ears to hear, listen in and hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is a vision of Jesus Christ, a vision to sustain Heritage Bible Church. Let's pray. Father, we tremble at your word. Help us all the more to tremble at your word. In whatever circumstances we find ourselves, I do not consider my own present circumstances terribly difficult on account of Christ. And I suspect that there are other Christians in other parts of the world in much harder circumstances on account of their testimony of Christ who are in ultimately much better circumstances for perhaps they can see and feel what's on the page here better than I and we can. But we pray for your Spirit's help to strengthen us in our difficulty as Christians and to protect us as the one with all power and all wisdom and all strength and all majesty. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.